I annoy my students immensely when I teach. Oh, I thought you were going to stop at immensely. Hello, welcome to another Myth Fidelity. My name is Matthew Lee Anderson. I have just kicked Derek out of the host chair because he failed too many times. Uh, you're listening to another show. Uh, we've got Derek here, as I've mentioned already. Alistair is here. We don't have a special guest. We've talked to too many other people. We decided that we would just talk amongst ourselves uh, for once. Guys, it's good to be back with you. How are you both? Yep. Yep. Doing well? <laughs> Derek gives us a yup. Yep, not sure what that means, but uh, a little, 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 little tongue tied. Just kind of keeping it simple, keeping it straightforward. Apparently, yep. Well, thanks for being yep. present with us, Derek. In as much as you actually are. All right, so we decided that we would um, take up scripture again. Uh, one of the last episodes that we did on scripture was about uh, the weird passage out of Matthew, where the dead are raised, and who knows what in the world is going on with that. Uh, and so I wasn't on that show, but the feedback that we got was that it was great. People loved it um, and sent very ingenious uh, emails to us interpreting the passage, which I found very interesting and helpful and clarifying. So we thought that we would take up a slightly different topic with respect to scripture, namely the boring parts. Uh, so if we went maximal weirdness last time, we're going maximal boringness this time. Um once people hit Leviticus, they quit, and for good reason. Um, it seems like uh, laws upon laws piled upon uh, more laws. It's just turgid reading, uh, and it kills every read through the uh, the Bible in a year plan. Really what I, th I think people should do, guys, uh, with those plans is probably put Leviticus at the very end to make it the last thing that people read, because then by that point, you know, you hit December and you're almost there. And the thought of not finishing that becomes so painful. So really we should read Leviticus at the very end of our year interview. But I think the question is something like, what do we do with this? How do we actually, when we hit those passages of scripture, not only Leviticus, but numbers uh, or uh, the genealogies, what do we do with these and how do we, uh, make it so that we uh, don't get killed by scripture's apparent boringness. Yeah, I. It's funny. I you you say you say Leviticus, but I remember when I was a kid, I'd get to I'd get to Exodus and write about after the legal code, which I could mostly kind of work my way through. It would just be a hop, skip, and a jump over all the tabernacle instructions. To that little bit of little bit of story in the middle there, where uh, with a golden calf, and then jump again from there to bits of bits of numbers, um, and it's it's been interesting here in the dissertation program. I've been studying holiness, and I've had to work my way back into into these legal texts, into these holiness texts in Leviticus and, 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 and Exodus. And it's one of those fascinating things where broad, broad expanses of scripture have just opened up in the other sections, in the narrative sections or in, in, in the New Testament epistles like first Peter and Hebrews, where 
I, I just don't think I was catching what was going on uh, precisely because the intense boringness of, of legal code was slowing me down. And it's been one of those motivating parts when, it, when I finally started to see some of the connections between the two that made me think, okay, I, I, it's worth it. It's worth actually uh, working my way through some of these things. But uh, I needed a start and I needed a guide. And that is basically all my intro in to saying, uh, I'm here for this, but also, Alistair, you need to you need to give us an answer here on, on how to get into it. <laughs> it's Welcome important, to Fidelity, I believe, the podcast where I, we just wait for Alistair to tell us what to think about things. I remember growing up several times I tried to read through the Bible in the year and did not get further than um, Leviticus. Leviticus really was my nemesis. Because Wait, now I, I gotta, I've got to ask Alistair. Now I've got to ask, have you ever read through the entire Bible in a year? Um, I have read through oh. the Bible in a year on several occasions, yeah. I'm trying okay. to think how many now, but a number of occasions. But I've not actually done the Bible in a year in a strict program. I've read it through in the course of a year. Um, so yeah. I presume that counts. I've read it through over right. the course of Lent, for instance. We'll let it um, slide. C- carry on with your but point. When <laughs> but when we reach a book like that, sometimes just the sheer repetitive character of it, sometimes just the distance of it from our regular experience just makes it forbidding and difficult to approach. It's difficult even to get a basic handle upon something that we can draw from it even when you have the basic points about holiness and sacrifice at a certain point you're reading text after text about this and it seems that you're not really gaining much more than you would from just one text on it and it can be even worse when you get to the beginning of first chronicles and you just have page upon page of genealogy and lists of names but i found as as derek says the more that you look into these things with a broader base of biblical knowledge, the more that these texts actually open up. And not only those texts, but those texts that you once considered boring serve to open up other texts. So, for instance, I was reading through the story of Genesis recently and noticed that the pattern of the story of Judah and Tamar, which is a weird story in Scripture, is very similar to the pattern of the story of the, of the Day of Atonement. And there's a connection between those two stories. I'm still not sure what to make of it, but there's something that is a deep connection that will provide illumination, I believe, for both of those stories. Now, when we get to other parts of the genealogies and you look closer at them, you realize these are carefully structured texts and they have deep theological meaning. So recently I was looking through the text of Genesis 46, where you have the list of the people who went into Egypt with Jacob, and who are the mothers, and the particular children that descended from them, and all these details, and it just, you have the numbers of people in each list, things like that, and it just seems extraneous and unnecessary, and there's repetition and other things in there. But when you break down the list and look more closely, you see it's, there's close numerical structure, there's a lot of symbolism in there and there are many other things that direct us towards deep scriptural and theological truth for instance 
the connection of Leah with the number six and how that plays out, or the way in which someone like um, the the handmaids have half the children of, um, or Zilpah has half the number of children as Leah, and Z- and um, Bilhah has half the number of children as Rachel. And there's a theological point there, but we miss it if we don't look a bit more closely. But yet, what happens when someone has not yet developed the sort of biblical knowledge to come to a text like that? Do they have to just wade through it and get bogged down and never actually move on? Or is there is it legitimate to maybe skip that section and then come back to it at some later point? What do you yeah, think? Yeah, j- just, just for example, what is the theological point of Leah and the number six, and then the, and then the half, the halvesies on on the, on the maidservants and, and children. Just just for the just for the listeners, not not that I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> not that I haven't caught on to that deep. It's a good mis- It's a good one. I want them to hear it too. <laughs> no, but seriously. Yes, I think. One of the things that it highlights is that the handmaids, the children that come through them, they're not blessed in the same way with fruitfulness as the wives. And there's a difference between their status. And I think we see that more generally within the text, that there are implicit judgments upon the marriage practices of the patriarchs, whether that's the story of Hagar or whether it's the story of um, Jacob and Rachel and Leah and then the handmaids, that there are ways in which If we look deeper within the text, theological judgments are cast upon um, events that we might think are otherwise ignored. I was thinking about this again in the case of Hagar recently, where people tend to think, okay, Hagar was an act, it was a mistake, it was something, a lack of faith, and then Abraham and his family have to brush themselves off and develop faith and then move on. But the Hagar story never goes away. It lingers in the background, and it's only as Israel enters into the experience of Hagar that they actually can move forward. And so when you read the story of Joseph, you see Joseph ends up being like another Ishmael, another Hagar, being someone who's an oppressed servant, an afflicted servant in the house of an Egyptian. He's someone who's taken down by the Ishmaelites to Egypt. And it's only by entering into the experience of the afflicted Egyptian that Israel can be redeemed. Now, unless you're looking closely at these sorts of details, you'll miss that. In the same way, for instance, with the story of Benjamin is born, and then the next part of the text is the genealogy of um, Esau. And then you start to notice all these parallels between the story of Benjamin and the story of Esau. Esau has these characters that remind us of other things. So there's Anna who goes into the wilderness and finds a well there while searching for his father's donkey. The first king of um, of Edom is Bella, who's the first child of Benjamin. We have also a list of kings, and if we map them up to their um, equivalent in Israel at the time, we have the fact that Edom has kings before Israel, but then when we match the later ones up, we find that there was a Saul of Rehoboth at exactly the same time as Saul of Israel. And following those details through, we see that there is a twinning of these two, and that Benjamin 
later on, having its destiny worked out in Saul, the first king, Saul is like an Esau character. And it helps us to read those two things. But unless we're paying close attention to the genealogies and other so-called boring parts, we'd be missing that. So I think that's that's a terrific tour, Alistair, and a, a strong sales pitch for the details of the genealogies as I think any of us in this world are ever going to hear. Um, I do think that it highlights the difficulty or the problems or the limitations of the ways in which most of us approach scripture. So, for instance, let's say that one... Uh, mostly consume scripture in the midst of a morning prayer routine where one follows the lectionary. In that case, a lot of those uh, genealogy sections might, e might be excised, right? Um, through the lectionary, you might not encounter them in the kind of way that would open up those sorts of readings. And in the read through the Bible in a year plan, the more kind of evangelical experience of scripture, um, you're not really reading for those details uh, in the midst of it, right? You're, you're not, you're reading it, you're not studying it. And it seems like uh, one of the major sort of challenges of those boring passages is that they require genuine study. Like you've got to gird up your loins and approach those things with uh, uh, a real kind of diligence and fastidiousness about all of those details and a memory that allows you to cultivate the kinds of resonances and uh, parallelisms that you're drawing out of it. And I think that that sense of approaching scripture as a uh, an aspect wherein we're going to study it is probably distinct from how most of us consume scripture on a regular basis, right? Um, but it does seem to me that within those passages, within those boring sections, that's precisely what's required. The best, probably the best Sunday school class I've ever taught was a very slow read through of Leviticus. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the cumulative growth of knowledge from week to week as we continue to explore the text uh, made the, the, the book more and more interesting. But if you're not doing a really slow reading of it with commentaries by your side and resources in hand or in a community of people where you've got Alistair telling you all of these awesome things then it just seems hopeless at that point. Is it? Is there something that can be done for ordinary people? Like, how do you get started on the path if, Alistair, you're the extreme end of seeing all these uh, biblical typologies and you've got the PhD that authorizes you to do that? How do you get started, right? Like, where, how does the person who has never encountered these before uh, in a meaningful way, what did they do? For me, it was just experiencing skilled readers, spending time with skilled readers, whether reading books or alongside other people within a community context. The idea that we're supposed to encounter all of these texts by ourselves and that we won't feel lost um, is a strange one because it takes an awful lot of wisdom and study and discipline to get into these texts. And there's very few people that can summon that up by themselves. I certainly can't. I need other people around me who help and 
prod me along and together we can do a lot more than we can do by ourselves. And likewise, you need the legacy of skilled reading that the church deposits, where you have people who have learnt from wise interpreters and commentators, you have the commentaries by your side, all these other things, and then you bring that towards a collective task of reading. And that has so much more potential for insight than merely reading by yourself. And you should be reading by yourself, but if that's all you're doing, I think we're missing out on some of the um, deeper possibilities of biblical reading that occur within a community. As you say, within that sort of community where you're taking a text over a period of time, there are ways that it can open up even the most difficult texts. That is that is helpful. Yeah, the patience with the problem, I think, is 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 something. Just realizing, I think there are times when it's when it's okay that you you know that you know what, this is not my year to understand Leviticus realistically within my schedule. I will I will I will jump ahead to numbers and some of those narrative portions in there and kind of get on through the the, the more kind of the easier reading of Deuteronomy and kind of make my way through. And and one of the things, there is a sense in which kind of going through a lot of the other material does, the more you start to inhabit the other material, it does start to prime you in new ways to go back to the more boring sections. So the interesting sections do actually often give you a leg into the more boring ones. And just knowing yourself uh, at, at certain points in reading, um, it, it's good to just be realistic about that. Uh, I will say that that does bring me to one of one interpretive principle, though, that has been helpful is in those in those kind of boring sections that are next to um, narratives. I, I have found you know narrative narrative uh, interludes can be extremely crucial, right? Uh, if you want to have a clue for what's going on in a text, you know, you're going through Leviticus, um, there's not much narrative. There's only th- two or three or I, I don't know how many portions but at this point, but like Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, that that little narrative, uh, in, not in the cent- dead center of it, but pretty dang close to the center of it, um, that is a huge interpretive key for what the 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 struggle and the heart and the the challenge of what's going on in Leviticus is about, right? How can we enter into the presence of a holy God? He's, he's given us these laws. He's given us a sacrificial system. He's given, he's, he's uh, provided for this tabernacle to be built where he can dwell among his people. And at the same time, um, there's a struggle to enter into his presence. It's not, it's not, it's not a simple thing. It's not anything you can kind of make up for yourself, kind of how this should go. And so that tension, that, that, that event of Nadab and Abihu's death before the altar generates, um, it generates the, a lot of the tension that's going on in that first chunk of Leviticus, uh, one through 16, 17, and, and really even some of what's going on in the, in, the, in the latter half when it comes to a holy people dwelling with a holy God. So I, I have found that there are times where paying attention to those, those bits, those hooks that you, that, you can, that you can have some semblance of what's going on, um, they, can, they can start to open up 
a sense of some of the deeper logic of what's going on in the in the in the in the places where you're you're not picking up all the details, but you have a general sense of okay. So this is this is what these sacrifices are kind of aiming at. This is what uh, this is what these this tabernacle kind of has to do here. And so so focusing in on what you can. There are clues, right? We're not totally lost. It's not all just wait till the and defer to the commentaries. There, 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 there are hooks within there for people to get a purchase on. That, that's something that I've been. That, that's something I've I've found over these years, and you know, plus plus the the deep study of commentaries and all that kind of thing. So um, that's one thing I've seen. Alistair? I think that's a great example. The story of Nadab and Abihu, as you say, really is quite critical for understanding that central section of Leviticus. It ends the installation of the priests, and it's just the climax of that narrative where things yeah. are about to enter into God's presence, and it then fails. And then it's also mentioned at the very beginning of the Day of Atonement, the death of yep. the two sons. How do you respond to that crisis? How can you, as it were, reboot the system? and right. enable a sinful people to come near to a holy God. And as you say, when we're reading through the text, a lot of the things might go over our head. But focus on those things that you can understand. And also I found on that front, you don't have to read the chapters one chapter at a time, uh, the book one chapter at a time. Well, you do, but one chapter wow. every day. Um, you can read it in one sitting. I mean, it's like... It's like two blog posts of Matt and or I. I mean, we've we've written. Blog oh, posts don't that bring are about me half into the length this. of the book of Leviticus. <laughs> two two and blog so posts is yours, sir. You and I are on different levels in this respect. <laughs> you've written blog posts over ten thousand words. <laughs> well, I've, I've seen it. But essays, put, mind you. I've seen it. <laughs> but putting those things together, you can. You could read through this in one sitting without too much of a struggle. And often that may be the best way to read certain parts of Scripture. You don't need to read all the division of the land at the end of um, Joshua chapter by chapter or every single day meditate upon the meaning of some detail of the genealogy in First Chronicles. There are a lot of parts of Scripture that you can read in one sitting, skip over in um, by skimming them even, and then come back to them at some point when you're ready to understand them in more depth. There are some parts of Scripture, though, when you do return to them, you, you find that they have a greater significance than you might otherwise have realized. So maybe one example of this might be the description of the tabernacle, that um, within the story of, of the book of Exodus, you have a lot of space given, first of all, to the description of how the tabernacle is to be built, and then the description of how the tabernacle is in fact built. And as you look more closely in that, it's structured in various ways, there are various patterns, the details of it, as you look more closely, some have suggested they map onto the days of creation, or different parts of creation, and they tell you something about how Israel was supposed to relate to this building. And looking more closely at that, then you see going out into further parts of Scripture, the way it connects with the story of Christ, the way that it connects with the um, the events later on in Scripture in um, places like Revelation, other things like that. So many of them use tabernacle structures or the book of John, where you go through different parts of the temple. The measurements as well. There's a great thread recently by James Bajon on the 
temple in Ezekiel and all the numbers within that and how they play upon the theme of Jubilee and other sorts of themes that unless you look really closely, you wouldn't see that. But yet it's there and God cares about those details. But maybe we need to work to a point where we're ready to understand them. And jumping in at the deep end is not always the best way to swim. I think that's a really valuable point. I mean, uh, to, to, the, to the issue of reading strategies, um, expanding, sort of stepping back and reading the whole book in one continuous setting reminds me of a post that Fred Sanders wrote years ago where he basically summarized James Gray's How to Master the English Bible, uh, which... Uh, was not a book that I was familiar with, but Gray, you know, sort of lays out how people should read the Bible. And Gray's strategy is very different than most of us read the Bible. He recommends doing what you're saying, right? Reading a full book, reading it continuously, reading it in a single setting, uh, and then just reading it over and over in that kind of way. Obviously, a challenge with something like Isaiah, which is huge. Um, the Psalms don't work quite <laughs> that way. Um but for some of the narrative texts and even Leviticus, you can do that sort of reading and it provides a context or a frame in which you, you have a, a sense of the whole. And the more you have a, a sense of the whole and what's going on, you can start to see how all the details work together. I annoy my students immensely when I teach, um, for many reasons. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought you were going to stop surprising it. us here. I, I thought you were going to stop it immensely. Just I know I'm Yeah, no, no, no. And I was going to get there before you guys had a chance to start outlining the ways in which I would annoy my students. But one way in particular that I annoy my students is by repeating over and over, whole part whole, right? Having a sense for the whole allows you to see, have a dim grasp of how the parts work together. And as you get into the parts and you start evaluating how those parts work together, uh, you'll have, when you step back, a better sense of what's going on in the whole. And that's just a kind of cyclical process. That's just the way our minds work. We have to have a sense of the whole in order to know how the parts work and then vice versa. Um, and so I think some of and the that ways is systematic which, theology. And that is systematic theology, right? And but but it's a real challenge because many of the ways in which our Bible reading culture has been set up aren't conducive to that. Because you know the the read through the Bible in a year plan where you're getting two chapters at a time doesn't allow you to have that sense of the whole in quite the same way. And it also doesn't give you the granular focus on the details. It's almost this like halfway house uh, that's that's just basically useless. Um, like I feel like God in Revelation is going to spit that manner of reading the Bible out of his mouth. And that's certainly way too strong. But um, I, it does seem to me to be not the most effective way of ongoing uh, consumption of the Bible. Perhaps the best example that I can think of of this, the whole, heart, whole part, whole principle, is when we're reading through something like the book of Deuteronomy. And you have the list of the Ten Commandments, 
But what most people don't notice is that after the Ten Commandments, you have under the loose setting of each commandment one by one, you have the rest of the material of these case laws and other odd laws that are structured under those headings. And it helps you to understand the whole, the broader principle, for instance, of um, not committing adultery or um, honouring your father and mother, that you see that that relates to a lot of things beside what you might have thought it immediately relates to. But it also, it at the same time, it condenses into a single principle and then it expounds into a broader set of truths. There's a sort of refraction of the pure light of the law into these different colours. And I think when we're reading scripture, that is profoundly illuminating. I mean, I found you suddenly read the Ten Commandments and they come alive because you see that within this is a great wealth of material is opened up by the rest of the text. And then the rest of the text is no longer just these scattered miscellaneous laws, but it is related to that pure light of the Ten Commandments and bringing those things together can really help us read both of those sections, getting the riches out of both of them. Um, with that, with that, this is where, this is where I actually do think, um, and, and, I, and we'll see how the Old Testament folks feel about this. This is where I actually do think the New Testament provides a wonderful key for going back to the Old Testament. There's, you know, you need to read the New Testament in light of the Old, but you also need to read the Old Testament in light of the New. Uh, and, and it's interesting when you start to go through the epistles or go through the gospels and, um, and then go back to the material in, in a, in a genealogy or go back to the material in the law. Uh, Leviticus feels different if you've spent, you know, three or four read throughs in Hebrews. It just, it just doesn't. Um, it, it feels, it feels different. You start to see, Oh, this is going over. This is going over here. Or, you know, even just kind of weird little verses like uh, where Paul talks about, you know, making sure not, not to muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Paul says very clearly, okay, but God's not really talking about oxes here. It's about, it's about, it's about not muzzling workers. And, and, and he, he, he applies it then to workers in gospel ministry. And you start to realize, okay, but the, these, legal, these legal codes have depths of mentions that, that it, the New Testament invites us to read the Old Testament in new and, and illuminating ways. Um, and so that's one of the things that I have found very, very helpful. And the analogy back from, you know, first Peter, first Peter starts talking about us as a temple and he starts talking about us as priests and, and, and you, and you, and the way and the moral ways that, that it's supposed to be applied in our lives. The analogy you have to read, from old to new, partially, but also you can read back from new to old uh, in realizing well, the way that separate. Go. Did you have to? You have an interruption, Matt. Well, that makes me wonder, uh, and I'd be curious to hear. So here's I'm going to pull you guys. If you have a new Christian, which book of the Bible do you think they should read first? Right. I'm, I continue to be interested in this problem of like how people get started on uh, reading well and getting to the point where you guys both are in terms of understanding scripture this way and appreciating its depths and so on and so forth. And um, so I'm just curious. So here's the poll. Which book of the Bible 
would you have someone read first in order to get started? Alistair? Um, probably one of the Gospels. Probably mm-hmm. John or Mark. John? Okay. Mark. Hmm. Interesting. Derek, what about you? Well, yeah, I was also going to say one of the Gospels, um, but my initial instinct would not was not John. Uh, I mean, John. John's kind of great, like a way to start the Christian life, in a sense. Like, oh, well, you want to know what the Gospel is? Start with John. I mean, that's kind of also deceptive because of how complicated things are in there. But, um, but. Yeah, I, I was gonna say uh, either either Mark or um, Mark or Matthew, actually, um, just because. And and Matthew's interesting, you know, in terms of just having a, you know, it starts you off with a weirdo uh, genealogy that's actually one of the best ways of trying to get people in into genealogies. But um, the nice thing about uh, starting with Matthew is that you only have a you have like a short bit of boring at the beginning with the genealogy where you don't know what's going on, but that very quickly clues you in that this is this is this is um, this is the key chapter in a very very long story that's coming before, um, that goes all the way back, uh, or for that matter Luke would work too, but but then it goes through and you kind of you kind of get the you kind of get a wide range of. Uh, kinds of material, you know, you get um, you get narrative, obviously, you get uh, moral instruction, some of which starts to clue you in and 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 prepare you for for going back to uh, legal material or prophetic instruction, uh, and then obviously you've got parables and teachings, and it's just the person of Jesus heading into the gospel, but also because Matthew focuses so much on the fulfillment side, you're not going to catch what's going on in all of those. And thus the Lord, you know, fulfilled X, Y, and Z because half the time those, those verses are being used kind of weird. Um, but it's consistently clue, cluing you in on that. Whatever's happening in the life of Jesus is happening in fulfillment of all the, all the, all the covenant before it, all the old Testament scriptures before it. And that's true of all the gospels, all of them. You, you find that dimension, but, um, Matthew front loads that so heavy, uh, he's so heavy handed with it that it, you know, if that's your first read in, you get a good sense of the overall shape of things as well as the overall sense that this is coming after and in fulfillment of what came before. And so I, I, I like Matthew for that reason. Uh, even though it's maybe not the easiest of the four to start with. So I think Matthew definitely has that that virtue of being um, a gospel that very much highlights themes of fulfillment, in part because as you read through the book of Matthew, it retells in many ways, it tells the story of Christ in a way that's structured by the story of the Old Testament. So it begins with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, alluding back to to Genesis. And as it goes through, the very beginning, it begins with a genealogy, which is... A bit. I mean, why begin the New Testament with the boring part? But as you look into that, you begin to see there are interesting things here. There's the women that are mentioned. Why are those particular women mentioned? Or um, Jeconiah and his, uh, or um, Jeconiah and his brothers, and then the relationship between Judah and his brothers, or the structuring of it in fourteens, 
why those 14s? And then why do we end up with someone who's called Joseph, the son of Jacob, who ends up having dreams and leading people into Egypt? There is a lot of structuring going on there. And then we arrive at the very end of the book of Matthew and we have the... um, at the very end of the book of Matthew, we have, Go therefore, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then we think back, I recognize that. That's the end of the Hebrew Old Testament, as we see in um, 2 Chronicles 36. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given to me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And so you begin to recognize the intertextuality of the book as it plays through step by step as Jesus experiences this. He comes up out of Egypt. He delivers a sort of law upon the mountain and then at each stage you're playing out the story of Israel and so it's a good starting point to bring people back into the Old Testament but whenever you're going to bring someone to the gospel for the first time I mean it's something you need someone to lead you by the hand through and ideally they're not going to be reading just by themselves yeah yeah and that's and that's that's, that's key yeah the the episode of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts, uh, I yeah. think, makes that very, very clear. Although, uh, as Oliver O'Donovan once pointed out, uh, one feature of that story is that uh, the word of God is active and working independently uh, of anyone's sort of leading and tutoring by awakening desire for instruction. Uh, so I think one thing that we encounter when we uh, read the scripts, uh, scriptures even on our own without ins- instruction is a recognition of our own limitations and a desire to be taught. And the awakening of that desire is, I think, a crucial part of our uh, spiritual formation. Alistair, I liked your first answer better, just so I'll, I'll answer my own question myself. I do think the Gospel of John is the right answer and any other answers are wrong. Um, <laughs> you got it. You got, a, you got an saying, argument. You got an argument there for it. No, of course not. Why would I? Um, no, I. I do think that the so the the recapitulation of the opening of Genesis. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right. It locates the story of uh, Christ in the context of Genesis at the very beginning, and it moves. That what you're going to read, even in one sense, behind what the Old Testament can do. Um, and so I think there is a way in which those first five verses like set up a, a sort of requirement that you read and take seriously what has happened in the Old Testament, that you are kind of uh, starting this thing in the middle of a story. Um, and so I think it has all of that. And, you know, the weirdness of it is kind of on the surface there's a lot of stuff that's going on and Jesus just says a lot of things that are really confusing uh, that um, I think awakens that desire for instruction in a way that uh, is really valuable. Um, From my standpoint, like one of the best things that we can do pedagogically is introduce students to texts that they just palpably don't understand because they're odd. Um, 
And anyone who has picked up the gospel, who has had a conversion experience, who has started reading this, has a desire, like, right? You're, you're kind of already in, you're, 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 you're reading this in order to understand it. And seeing all this weird stuff on the surface of this text, from my standpoint, drives that desire even more and, um, and really, really can move someone to want to love God more. And then, you know, just like all of John's, all of the sermons and, uh, in John are so valuable spiritually and, and meditatively that I think it's just a, an extraordinary text to, to begin with. So sorry to both of you. You're both wrong. Um, uh, <laughs> in some ways, it might be similar to it might be similar to getting someone into Tolkien. You don't start with the Silmarillion. You generally will start with the Hobbit, or if they're of an older age, the Lord of the Rings, and then they can work from that into the deeper lore of um, Middle Earth. But if you throw them in at the deep end, they may not come out. But John, John is John is both the deep end and the shallow end, right? It's that's that's the curiosity of John because it's it's the text which we all quote from the beginning. We quote in you know persuading our friends to become Christians, uh, John three sixteen, right? Like it is on one level the shallow end. It's got enough in there that that anyone can read. I am the vine, you are the branches, right? You can meditate on that and, and experience the Christian life in, a, in an incredibly deep way, but it's also the deep end because it has these moments that are just fully bizarre. And that's probably true of all scripture, but maybe true more of John than the other scriptures. <laughs> if we can say that. Um, any any final thoughts other than my own rightness on this? Any any concluding reflections uh, that you think would be helpful for folks? Well, just you know, we, we've been we've been talking here about all these strategies, and it's great. Um, I will say it's okay to it is okay to just have something simple and straightforward, like a good study Bible to start. Um, it you know we have these resource a lot a lot of us have these resources now. Uh, in the States, there's a lot of good ones, certain ones, you know, uh, that are focused on, on biblical theology. I think of the NIV study Bible, Carson, Carson edited it, the ESV study Bible. A lot of those do actually, they've gotten really good at giving a lot of contextual, um, small comments that lead people in. They're not perfect. They're not exhaustive, but uh, they will get you through a lot of material. They will help you as guides through a lot of material that um, you might initially be lost in, and then from there you can you can move on. You, you don't treat the comments like like the text, but it, there's no shame in it. It's it, it's they're very useful. They're they're very useful uh, tools, and so a good study Bible can give you a huge leg up on jumping into uh, a lot of those texts that that you wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, I think I strongly agree with that. One thing to bear in mind is that our modern texts that we're used to reading are designed to be read and comprehended very quickly, whereas scripture is designed to be chewed, o chewed over, meditated upon, and read and reread. You can never have read the Bible. You're always in the process of reading and rereading it. You're never at the point of having understood it in the past tense. It's always a continuing process. And so don't rush yourself. Um, take the time that you need. Um, learn with other people. 
Use the resources to hand. There are some amazing resources around today. There are Bibles that are a lot easier to read now, things like readers' Bibles and other Bibles that are designed for uh, more, for want of a better word, immersive readers' experience. Um, So make the most of that. Also, try and read the Bible aloud or listen to the Bible. Um, Read it in single sittings. Read it and read it again and again. And just try and be a practice attention rather than trying to have your questions answered. Because often the best way to understand scripture is to take more time over it and not rush the process of comprehension and understanding as we are accustomed to do within an age where everything moves fairly quickly um, and we have a lot of books to get through. Most people who encountered the Bible in the in historically would have had very few texts in their society. And as a result, they would give a lot of time and attention to this particular text. And it rewards that. And so know that there are treasures to be found in some places that may not be accessible to you yet. But work your way up to it. You have, think of it as a lifelong project. That's how long you'll be reading the Bible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a terrific word to end on. Um, We're so grateful for your time and attention. We hope this conversation about the Bible and reading strategies and all the boring bits has been helpful to you. If you have enjoyed it or any of... Uh, the other shows that we've done please do rate and review us Uh, if you've got show ideas for us we're always eager to hear from our listeners we might take something of a hiatus over the summer we're not entirely sure how active we'll be we're still sorting that out Uh, but we are so grateful for such a loyal and intelligent audience Uh, we love hearing from you all so please do stay in touch if you want to join our patron subscribers uh, you can do so the link uh, to do that is at mirrororthodoxy.com where the show notes will also be Uh, this has been mere fidelity until next time we hope that you stay well 